starting a six-week series, as Ken mentioned, in the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you need a Bible, I think Mike Hawkman has some. So if you just raise your hand. Move this forward a little bit. When we start the book of Ecclesiastes, we pick up on a conversation that's been going for probably 600 years or so. And so what we can't do is just jump straight into the book of Ecclesiastes. We have to go back. And we're going to go back to the book of Deuteronomy. So if you have your Bibles, you could turn there to chapter 28, verse 1. What's going on? The book, book of Deuteronomy, deutero means, meaning second in Greek, nomos meaning law, date is somewhere around 1100 B.C. What is going on? The Israelites have been delivered from captivity of the Egyptians by the hand of God through Moses, and they've been wandering through the desert. But before the wandering started, they were given the law. They were given laws that would hew them into the people God wanted them to be, into a people who would receive God's blessing and then in turn bless the world. And these laws were long. There's 613 of them. Uh, Sometimes to a modern reader, they're kind of mundane. They seem odd. And so the original community brought out of the Exodus, out of Egypt, received the law from Moses, from the Lord, through the Lord, through Moses, from the Lord, at, at Sinai. And what he did there was he provided these laws, and this community was to go and then change the world through these laws. Now, that community, when we get to the book of Deuteronomy, has all but died out. And so they're standing on the edge of the promised land, the land that God is going to give them. And they're waiting for an address from the Lord. And the Lord gives this address through Moses. And it's essentially the second giving of the law, Deuteronomos. And what God does through Moses is he recontextualizes, if you will, the law given to the Israelites at Sinai. And after all of the laws are given, he goes and he just sums it all up and says, it really falls into two paths. You can choose blessing by obeying, or you can disobey and choose the curse, really, which is, as I have up here, things will go poorly for you. And so that's where we pick up in chapter 28. It says, if you will only obey the Lord your God by diligently observing all his commandments that I am commanding you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all nations of the earth. All these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you, if you obey the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your livestock, both the increase of your cattle and the issue of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl, and blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. These are the blessings. But there's a flip side to this. Verse 15, but if you will not obey the Lord your God and diligently observe all of his commandments and decrees, which I am commanding you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And then the flip side, cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall you be, shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the increase of your cattle and the issue of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in and cursed shall you be when you go out. You flip to the next slide, Graham. What we essentially have here in the book of Deuteronomy is a worldview. And this worldview says that God has created the world and he's created order inherently into the world. And what our job as human beings is to do is to either choose wise action, 
be in harmony with the order that God has created in the world and thus experience success or blessing. The flip side of this is choosing foolish action and disruption of the, of the world of the order that God has created and thus failure or curse. And you can think of this like, like this. Fire is hot. Fire can be used to warm yourself, to cook food, but it can also burn. The same with gravity. And so the ancient Hebrews recognized that there was an order in the world and that they had one of two choices. And this is what we're presented with in the book of Deuteronomy. The next slide, we take our journey and move a book, a book down the way. We move to the book of Proverbs. And Proverbs is a collection of pithy adages, of, of short wisdom sayings. And the date, we'll say, is probably around 1,800 B.C., uh, and what Proverbs does is it applies the formula given to the whole people of Israel, and it does it on an individual stance, and in it puts it in this language. It says, if you are wise, life will be good, but if you are foolish, you will suffer. And go to the next slide. Some examples of this, Proverbs eleven eight: the righteous are delivered from trouble, but the wicked get into it instead. You see the two paths. There's the righteous and the wicked. How about the next slide? So when it comes to actions, whoever is steadfast in righteousness will live, but whoever pursues evil will die. There, there's no third category in this ancient worldview. There's just two. It's a black and white world that we're seeing here. What about the next one? 1318, poverty and disgrace are for the one who ignores instruction, but the one who heeds reproof or, or instruction is honored. You go to the next slide. So we have with the book of Proverbs and the book of Deuteronomy, the formula. It has been set up. It has shown us that there are two paths in life. And the ancients used this formula and used this way of life. Starting the book of Deuteronomy, you go into the book of Joshua, into the book of Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and you see this formula over and over and over again. When the people of God obey God, what happens? Good things. When they disobey him, bad things happen. Well, the problem is, is the people of God, as is typical with us human beings, started to focus too much on the formula and not on the God who had given the formula. Does that make sense? So all of a sudden we get to the book of Job and we get a radical, radical revision in the formula. Job asks whether a person will remain integrous, honest, righteous in the face of arbitrary suffering. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Job. We'll go chapter one. Job was a righteous man. And Job had seen the order of the world and he had done everything right. And yet this is what happens to Job. Verse 13. One day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the eldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were feeding beside them and the Sabians fell on them and carried them off and killed the servants with the edge of the sword I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still yet speaking, another came and said, the Chaldeans formed three columns, made a raid on the camels and carried them off and, the, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, Another came and really delivered the blow. Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the eldest brother's house, and suddenly a great wind came across the desert, struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead. 
I alone have escaped to tell you. Is this a good day? Everything that Job held value and love and care and concern, what brought him status in the world is gone. And do you get the scene here? Job is just standing there and servants one by one are coming up. And before the, the first one is even done, the second one is delivering the news. And the, and the same with the third and the same with the fourth. You've just, you've just received the worst news you could possibly get that not only is all your property gone, your possessions, not only is all of your servants gone, those you loved and entrusted, but your family, your, your children as well. Job's world has been radically rocked. You can go to the next side. So the formula is turned on its head. God, order of the world, wise action. Well, here's the interesting thing. What is Job experiencing? He's experiencing radical failure. His life in the worst way has been disrupted. So if you were looking at Job from the outside, what would you assume? You would assume this, wouldn't you? This is exactly what his friends do. You can go to the next slide. His friend Eliphaz, the Temanite, says, think now. Who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. These are Eliphaz's comforting words to Job. What what has Eliphaz just said to Job? He's just said, not only are you not righteous, Job, not only did you sin, and that's why this has come upon you, but who else sinned? Your children and your servants, and your donkeys. This is a radical change in the formula. Job is disrupting this worldview. People, and you can see it with Eliphaz, and you can see it with Bildad, and you can see it with Zophar, the three friends, and even there's another, a third guy in the book of Job, Elihu. They're uncomfortable with what's happening to Job because they have a paradigm about looking at life. They have a formula that says, Job, there's no way you're getting screwed over for doing nothing. You couldn't be righteous and be experiencing what's happening to you. That's not what? That's not how the world works. You can go to the next slide. So a review. The formula is established by the book of Deuteronomy. It's then applied by the book of Proverbs, and it's radically challenged by the book of Job. So our question is, what will be the contribution of the book of Ecclesiastes? The next slide. So let's talk a little bit about the the book itself. The name Ecclesiastes comes from the line in the first verse there, 1-1, where it says words of the teacher. In Hebrew, this is koheleth. And this comes from the root, koheleth comes from the root kahal, which literally means one who assembles. In Greek, it's ecclesiastes. And you're probably familiar with that word from ecclesia, the church, literally the gathering. Well, the author, traditionally it's been thought of as Solomon. The editor, in fact, says in, in the first verse, the words of Koheleth, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, which is a fairly good description, we would think, of who Solomon is. He is David's son. He did reign in Jerusalem. Another thing it does is it fills the gaps of 1 Kings. 1 Kings tells us Solomon was the wisest, that he was the richest, that he built more buildings and married more women than anyone before him. This is quite a resume. Go to the next slide. But there are problems with the traditional view. And this is recognized by conservative and liberal scholars alike. Uh, And what follows is the argument by a man named Trimper Longman out of Westminster. He notes some odd statements in reference to the king. 112 talks about, I believe, Solomon, or or rather the author, Koheleth, reigning in Jerusalem. Oh, he says, when he was king. 
which is odd because what we know about Solomon is that he was always king. So it implies that there was a time when he wasn't. Uh, 116 includes another reference that's a little strange. There's also comments of oppression made by Koheleth, the author of Ecclesiastes, especially in, in chapters 4, 5, and, and 10 there, that mention, and what he's saying is he's saying, look at the world around you. There's oppression. There's evil. There are rulers who do horrible things. And he's, even, he's noticing this in his own community. Well, what's odd about that? If you're the king, you should probably be able to do something about that. And in fact, 1 Kings 12.4 even talks about Solomon being the cause of oppression of the people. So just, just some odd statements there. Probably the strongest argument for it not being written by Solomon, though, is the language. The language that Solomon would have spoken in 950 BCE or so is called classical Hebrew. And you have an example of what it looks like right here. This is called paleographic or epigraphic Hebrew. The language... While this was still used at the time, even up till Jesus, this is more the familiar language called Mishnaic Hebrew or a language similar to that. And to put it in modern understanding, it's like, um, it's like if you, you have King James English from the 1600s or so. When a modern reader hears that, what are they thinking? That is wild. That is way out of my, my zone. I don't understand that. That's not the vernacular of our day. So... Mishnaic Hebrew versus classical Hebrew. I'll show you an interesting thing. You see this character here? This is Phoenician, actually. And that character, if you tilt it to the right, what does that look like? It looks like an A. Phoenicians wrote the first alphabet. And that would later become our A. What about this one? Tilt it up like that, what's it become? It becomes a B. This is an Aleph in Phoenician and a, and a Beit in, in Phoenician as well. So that's actually the start of our, of our modern alphabet. You can go to the next slide. So, so I suggest before, well, you can do it anyway. Uh, 300 BC or so, BCE. I, I suggest that date not, that really it doesn't matter whether or not Solomon wrote it, whether or not some other character wrote it, whether or not Solomon or Koheleth is using Solomon's characteristics as a literary device. It doesn't matter. The point is that we don't, regardless of who wrote it and when, disregard the book's message based on assumptions about the spiritual and moral state of the author. There's too much good stuff in the book of Ecclesiastes for us to just throw it out, saying as some have, we'll see as a senile old man who is living in an apostate condition. Make sense? Okay, now you can go to the next slide. So, so if we're not talking about Solomon or whether we are, who was Koheleth? Well, he is a sage who collates, gathers, and teaches Proverbs. Koheleth also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many Proverbs, 12.9. He was king over Jerusalem, and most importantly, probably, he's a senior citizen, which would be holding the highest rank in the wisdom hierarchy. So he has at his hands all of the tools to do something pretty fascinating. You can go to the next slide. Oh, before we go there, though, for those of you that are really interested, here's a suggested... You can go to that, by the way. Here's a suggested structure to the book. And all I wanted to say about that, for those of you who, if you're interested in kind of an outline, is notice that... The prologue is spoken in the third person, the epilogue as well in the third person, about Koheleth. So the author himself is the autobiographical narrative, the, the spot by Koheleth is, comes in the, in the middle here. And the book has been edited, you can see here, in the first and last section. So that's really all I wanted to say about that. So what does Koheleth do? He tests the veracity of traditional wisdom. He has all the tools to do this. He's had the worldview. He's seen the formula before him. He's got money. 
He's a king, so he has power. And he's old, so he's wise. So what he can do is he can start a journey, testing and seeing whether or not the values of his society are valid. He seeks to find true meaning in many different areas. And here's some examples. He seeks to find true meaning in wisdom. He says, I said to myself, I acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were before me. And my mind has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. He also tried wealth, I believe. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also had gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and of the provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and delights of flesh and many concubines. What he's doing, he's saying, is it wisdom? If I go full bore checking out wisdom, will that bring me true meaning and happiness? Well, what if I try wealth? He also tries building projects. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forests of growing trees. So he's trying these different areas. What is going to bring me happiness? What is going to bring me true meaning? Next slide. Well, what does he see? What, what does he observe in this journey as he's trying out as he's testing the veracity of traditional thought, what does he see? Go ahead, Graham. He sees a challenge to the formula. He says, in my vain life, I have seen everything. There are righteous people who perish in their righteousness, and there are wicked people who prolong their life in their evil doing. All of a sudden, if you're a traditionalist in this Hebrew culture, what happens? The hairs on the back of your neck should stand up. Your ears should kind of tingling because this is not right. This right is not the formula. If you're righteous, what happens to you? Yet your life should be prolonged. And if you're wicked, you should die. You should suffer. I mean, this is the way life is supposed to work. You can go to the next slide. He says he's seen slaves on horseback and princes on foot. Once again, a radical shaking in Kohelet's observation of the traditional wisdom worldview. Well, then all of a sudden, he makes people a little bit happy with this first line here. He says, the wise have eyes in their head, but fools walk in darkness. This is most likely a quotation from that traditional way of looking at things. You'd see this in the book of Proverbs. And those traditionalists would be happy at this. They would see that he's saying, oh, yeah, that's one of ours. Go back real quick. That's one of ours. The wise have eyes in their head, but fools walk in darkness. Okay, we're with you. What's the next slide? Yet I perceive that the same fault befalls them them both. You both die. What is the value of living righteously? You're going to die anyway. You can go to the next slide. He also says, do not be too righteous and do not act too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? What does that sound like? Have you ever read that in the Bible? Don't be too good. Don't be too righteous. Don't focus too much on wisdom. Very interesting. This is what he experienced. Go to the next one. So what's his contribution? As you can probably see, he was a controversial character. He has been accused throughout history of contradictions within the text itself, of secularity and even heresy. So this is, this is a guy whose this book has been pretty hotly debated over history. Some of the uh, rabbis picked up on this in the next slide you see here. 
they noted some of the contradictions in the book of Ecclesiastes right away between the Torah. It's in the Torah, it says in Numbers, do not prostitute yourselves by going after the lusts of your hearts and eyes. And you compare that with Ecclesiastes 11.9. Follow, rather, the inclination of your heart and the desire of your eyes, but know that for all of these things, God will bring you into judgment. So he's saying, there's consequences, but, but try what your eyes see in front of you. Go out and experience life a little bit. Don't live inside the box. Now, again, I'm not pushing anything he's saying here. But this is in Scripture, and this is an interesting thing. We need to probably wrestle with this. So, the next slide. The Mishnah, which is the Jewish oral interpretation of the law, includes some rabbis that said some pretty wild things. Rabbi Tanhum of Nave said, Oh, Solomon, where is your wisdom? Where is your intelligence? Not only do your words contradict the words of your father David, they even contradict themselves. And the next rabbi... Simeon ben Menasiah said, The Song of Songs makes the hands unclean because it was spoken in the Holy Spirit. Ecclesiastes, rather, does not make the hands unclean because it is merely the words of Solomon. Now, to a modern reader, that sounds odd. Unclean, you would think, would be a bad thing. So isn't Song of Songs, it's bad that it makes your hands unclean. But what it's saying here is clean and unclean, you become unclean by touching holy things in this concept. So it's saying the book of Song of Song of Songs is a book that is holy. It is a book of God. And this rabbi is saying, not Ecclesiastes. It's just these, these words from Solomon. Go to the next slide. Um, Leviticus Rabbah says the sages sought to store away and read, destroy the book of Ecclesiastes because they found words in it which tended to heresy. And the next one, I think, takes us, yeah, into the Christian era where Jerome, in his commentary on the book of Ecclesiastes, says that the point of this book is to provoke contempt of the world. Now, what's hard is this morning, I haven't really shown you too much from the book of Ecclesiastes, and there's a reason for that. So it's hard in me showing you the reaction to the words of Ecclesiastes for you to really appreciate what the book says and why these people would have this reaction. But for the next five weeks, we will go into that. We'll see what this book says, and you'll see that it's really not all these people thought it was. And it's, in another way, a lot more than what these people recognize it as. Uh, it, I think, um, who's next? Tom, yeah, Thomas Kempis, in his Imitation of Christ, said, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And those are words quoted from Koheleth. Unless we serve God and love him with our whole heart, oh, this is the highest and safest wisdom, that by contempt of the world we endeavor to please God. This is Thomas Kempis and his rationalization or his taking the edge off of the book of Ecclesiastes. He's, he's doling the edge of the book a little bit here. He's, he's Christianizing it in a way. Go to the next slide. Luther probably had it the most right. He accepted Solomonic authorship, and he said the purpose of the book is to put us at peace and to give us a quiet mind in the everyday affairs and business of life so that we may live contentedly in the present without care and yearning for the future. So, last one. How does Ecclesiastes relate to our world? I have a feeling that if you were to go up to Koheleth, to the author of Ecclesiastes, and say, hey, your book's full of contradictions, you know what he'd say to you? Exactly. Life is full of contradictions. Life is full of inconsistencies. Life is full of, if only for a time, things that do not make sense. Retrospectively, a lot of things make sense to us. But at times, there's times when we don't need pat answers. 
There's times in life when things happen to us like cancer or people around us. There's times in life where people are victims, innocent victims of drunk drivers or couples who cannot seem to have children while people all around them who don't even want kids are getting pregnant. The, the world is messy. Jesus even talks about blessed be those who suffer and those who mourn. That's odd. Blessed be those who mourn. That's the kingdom of God. It's a place where God radically works through the lives of his people and through their mess. And he, in the process, gets messy as well. And what we see in the book of Ecclesiastes is really two things. If you're a person who is tired of formulas, who the A plus the B doesn't always add up, you seem things in your life seem to not be working out the way they should, quote unquote, this may be a book for you. And I would encourage you all to read it in the next week, straight through. It's an amazing text. And the idea with that is that we like it clean. We like our box. We like a manageable world. But all of us at some point or another will come face to face with the fact that that is not the reality of life. Life is not always clean. Relationships are many times messy. Many times things in life happen to us that we think are unfair. And it's our duty and our job to call out to God in that and question the justice of the world and know, yes, that he is always faithful, but yet never be fake. Never stop telling God what is really going on in your life. So that's the one group of people. What about the other group? The other group of people is, is the Proverbs set. And I'm not setting up any hierarchy here. Is it true that wise actions bring you in harmony with the world and that most often you'll experience success through that? Absolutely. That is nine times out of ten true. But what about the tenth time? The book of Ecclesiastes has something to say to that. Well, then there's another group of people who, at least at this time in their life, the formula is working. Life is pretty neat. You as well need to read the book of Ecclesiastes because there's a challenge in there to rather than worship the formula, you worship the God behind the formula the substance that is behind it. We so easily get into the rut of saying, okay, God, you tell me I do righteous, good things and everything will work out okay and I've seen that and then you're starting to do good things just for what? Your own benefit. I live a good life because it benefits me. That's not the system. You live a life trying to suck the blessings of God up because God is the substance that you seek, not the formula. That's pretty much it. If the... Worship band is ready to come up. I'll pray and we'll end. So the challenge is, is to read it over the next week. It's an amazing book. It's a book that has, as you've seen, stirs controversy, but there is so much in the book of Ecclesiastes. And for most of you, I guarantee you, it will be like a glass of cold water. It's an amazing book. So check it out. Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for giving us challenges. We thank you so much for your providence and your faithfulness with us. And we just pray that we would be open to all that you have to say through this amazing book of Ecclesiastes. And that as we go this week, we would really seek you instead of seeking the formulas. In your name we pray. Amen.